welcome to the, to the Brixton Book Jam, October 2017. Lovely to see lots of people here, although I can't see a thing because the lights, but I can hear you. Um, we've got a brilliant lineup of writers for you today and a great selection of books that they've brought along as well. So uh, I think it's going to be a really good show. Um, we'll be selling books in the intervals. Um, intervals are about 15 minutes. And we're trying to keep to time, so we'll tell you five minutes before the end of the interval to take your seats again. Uh, as, I don't know if you've been to Book Jam before, but the format is that people do short readings. Um, and after the first set, we're going to have a couple of songs, a break, and then we'll go into the next set. I don't normally compare the Book Jam, but our normal compare is in Carlisle with a, a, a van that's leaking gas. So bear with me, <laughs> and I'll do my best. Um, the first writer that I'm going to introduce you today is Miranda Gold. She's based in London, and her first novel, Starlings, was published by Karnak in December 2016. It reaches back through three generations to explore the, how the impact of untold stories about the Holocaust ricochets down the years. She's taken part in Jewish Book Week and was on the panel for reading as alchemy at Waterstones, Gower Street. Before turning her focus to fiction, Miranda took the Soho Theatre course for young writers, where her play Lucky Deck was selected for development and performance. She'll be reading from her second novel, A Small Dark Quiet. So, may I present Miranda. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Is this, can everyone hear me? Okay. Um, so I'm going to be reading from A Small Dark Quiet. Um, opens just before the end of the Second World War, soon after one of Sylvie's twins is still born. And then two years later, she and her husband adopt an orphan from a displaced persons camp, and they give the orphan the stillborn child's name, Arthur. People would come to speak of two Londons. People would come to speak of two Londons, one gutted and one singing. Sylvie had found herself in each, straddled them, yet already struggled to recall either, dimly aware of the bodies trapped under rubble, and talking to a woman, holding her hand until the stretcher came, of the jitterbug that had danced round her one night. Yes, the ladies in the shelter had taught her, packed in as they were, and drafted her into their world. A gentleman had warned them not to excite a lady in her condition. But then, from Harry's birth to Arthur's death, the arc of life was crossed at once. Empty cradle had been twinned with empty grave and took all sense from the body she'd have to live in, from the city she was meant to call home. The last all clear would sound a week later and while infant heads and hands and feet were blown from tiny bodies rendered nameless, Sylvie forged a tiny corpse of her own. Binding sticks and twigs lined with moss and stuffed with stones she wove her Arthur into life suspended and laid him in the ground, piling the warmth of the earth over him, planting him out in a second womb. We'll visit, she promised, every Thursday, June 1947. Sylvie crouched and turned up the sleeves of the boy's coat to find his hands and took one beneath both of hers. The boy lifted his face he just buried into his chest, enough for her to see that it was all creases and caverns. I'm to be your ma, she told him, 
The boy dipped his face again, but let her keep his hand. His black eyes on her knees until, crouching too, they found their way up to hers. And you, she said, are to be Arthur. He's a bit small, Gerald said. A bit small and a bit dark. He'll never match up with Harry. Quiet too, Sylvie thought. No, he never would match up. All there seemed to be to make the boy and Harold a pair was the age they shared. Not a day apart. It wasn't possible, Sylvia had said. The pen she'd been given to sign with falling out of her hand. The sharp black marks numbering the date on the form seeming to move again. She reminded herself it must have been estimated. Maybe even filled in at the last minute. One day as good as any other. But the less the boy matched up to Harold the more he seemed, at least to Sylvie, to fit the life that had died inside her, that she had felt shrivel while Harold grew and grew, too small, too dark, too quiet. Still, Gerald promised Sylvie, he'd make a proper little Englishman out of him, a proper little Englishman, a proper little soldier, and a proper little Arthur. Sylvie had prepared herself to assume the role of mother, nothing more, a role she would play with the same indifference as she played wife. But then the boy in front of her, drawn to take his hand, and the veil of indifference had thrown itself to be threadbare. Gerald's eyes checked her. What was best for proper little soldiers? Sylvie's fingers straightened, a hardened palm across her belly. Proper little soldiers needed efficiency, a firm hand and a firm tone, and being pulled under by the touch of him, the quiet of him wasn't going to make a proper little soldier out of anyone, least of all her, and she had to be. No one was getting out of the army now. Gerald glanced at Sylvie with a casual efficiency that peeled back her tone. Bath, dinner, bed. The boy's head disappeared between his knees, his arms wrapped around them, a prickle-skinned ball as Sylvie's hand reached to touch his shoulder. Maybe he's deaf, Gerald suggested. I think he's tired. Sylvie said. We should get him upstairs. Gerald picked Arthur up and laid him on the mattress next to Harold's bed. It seemed as though he handled the child with the same vague irritation that accompanied the mechanical duty with which he lifted garden tools. A single glint in the half-darkness of the room told Sylvie he'd never sleep, and the open eye sewed itself shut. Sylvie looked over at Harold, splayed on his back, open-mouthed, the surviving half of a double yoke. She'd walked him down to the swings that morning, telling him he was getting a new brother to play with, pulling his hand out of hers and running ahead. She'd started to run after him and then just stopped, barely able to tell him apart from the other children. She shook herself and rushed towards the huddle of nannies, burdened with bags and coats, watching him prance and stumble. We're getting you a new brother, Arthur. Can you say Arthur, Harry? As far as Sylvie would remember it, the boy's silence would not break for another week, the instant snatching her back to the house she'd once felt but never heard. A second cry was meant to rise up and join Harry's that spring, but without a living voice to carry it, the silence wail of primal need was trapped in the womb that failed it. More animal than human, it dissolved Harold's cries to little more than background noise. That same soundless howl pitched its helpless terror again.
but this time it found a voice in the boy's cried. Embodied, it filled her grieving womb with her dead child, melding the two Arthurs to one. Thank you. Um, our next writer is Alex Christoffi. He was born in Dorset and read English at Oxford. As well as working as an editor, he writes occasional essays and reviews. His first novel, Glass, published by Serpent's Tale, was long listed for the Desmond Elliott Prize and won the Betty Trask Prize. He'll be reading from his second novel, Let Us Be True, which charts the lives of these two extraordinary characters through an era of great uncertainty from World War II and its aftermath through to the deadly unrest of 1960s Paris. May I present Alex? Hi, so I'm going to read um, two very short snippets. Um, the first one is from the start of Ralph and Elsa's love affair. Uh, they've just taken a trip, an impromptu trip to the seaside and, um, and they're having their photo taken. As he had a brief click, Ralph thought about what had happened in that moment which had already passed. For just one hundredth of a second, the shutter had opened and photons had flooded into the dark box. They didn't move in lines, but everywhere at once, so that some might have traveled from Ralph's face to the end of the beach and back. They went so quickly that from the perspective of light, the rest of the universe remained at a standstill. For Ralph and Elsa, time was slipping by irrecoverably. But for that single hundredth of a second, the celluloid recorded its bombardment like the sooty negatives of objects and people scorched onto facades of buildings in bombings. The celluloid had ceased to interact with the world, a carpaccio of time, a leaf of the past brought into the present where Ralph and Elsa stood together, still. That's my studio down there, said the cameraman, pointing down the boardwalk towards the hotels. You can pick it up tomorrow morning. Ralph took his card. Why don't you get a Polaroid, asked Elsa. Because I'm a photographer, the man replied, winding the film. They continued on until they arrived at a row of beach huts where Elsa took off her shoes and they sat on some steps looking out to sea. It could only be perhaps four o'clock, but the moon was out. I wonder if it's waxing or waning, said Elsa. Waxing, replied Ralph. How can you be sure? It moves across the sky from light to right, left to right, but it waxes right to left. That's a waxing gibbous. When will it be a full moon? I guess about three days, four days, I don't know. They listened to the waves hush their way along the sand. It was the sound of tiny grains rubbing together. The inaudible event amplified a billion times as it repeated across the beach. The lone voice heard only in chorus. My father once took me to the observatory in his university. I only went there once before we had to leave. Is it one of those terribly sad stories? Yes. Then I don't want to hear it. Not now, when I'm having such a nice day. Um, the second reading is uh, when Ralph's a little bit older. He's trying to get perspective. As a young boy, he'd been happy enough because unaware of injustice, then angry when he discovered the extent of it. 
As a young man, he'd been idealistic, believing he might change the world and then depressed because he hadn't. Now he could see that the wheels of the world simply turned and one hopped between them there to rise or fall in a greater or lesser arc. Ralph had lived through certain decades with a certain status and certain natural qualities or inclinations to struggle. If one saw clearly how little the individual mattered, how determined a life was by its context, one would have to conclude that no one was responsible for their lot. If the rich were not literally gifted with wealth, they were determined to succeed by dint of their genetic inheritance, by sex, by height, attractiveness, impulse control, aggression, conscientiousness, charm. So too murderers. The Nuremberg trials had twisted everything because the Nazis had argued the opposite of what they believed, claiming that their individual actions were subordinate. And the Allies had argued by way of punishment the case for individual responsibility. But Ralph had never believed, couldn't believe that he lived out of history's reach when his life had so, so neatly followed its course. In this light, there could be no thought of his own happiness. What remained was free to nudge others towards their own fulfillment. For the first time in his life, he stopped thinking of the future, preferring instead to watch the world as it was. He started to perform small acts of kindness when he knew no one was watching. It felt like a kind of subversion, an irrational assertion of free will. He sorted through his books and writing notes of recommendation for five of his old favorites posted them through the letterboxes of unknown homes. He laid his overcoat on a homeless man while he was sleeping. It didn't make sense and no one could stop him. His days began to swell with potential. There was an old restaurant he liked in the West End where the steak was good and red and the waiters were convinced they knew better than the patrons. Ralph went there whenever he could afford it and the maitre d' would never ask whether he wanted a table for one. One Saturday in late spring, he found himself smiling down at his plate, almost unable to look at the young couple seated in the window. They looked younger than half Ralph's students, but they were the smartest dressed in the room, he in an oversized suit, she in a long dress. They both looked sick with nerves, each stealing glances at the other. She laid her hand on the table, half open, and he noticed it. He kept offering her bread and topping up her wine, determined to provide or to put off the end of the meal. And she nodded and touched her earring, her hand reaching out for him across the table, an open invitation. Ralph called the waiter over and asked for their bill as well as his own. The waiter's face lit up and he turned towards the young couple, but Ralph grabbed his arm. He wasn't to interrupt them while they were eating. Not a word until after Ralph was gone. much, Alex. Um, our third writer was born in Aden, and his name is Barry Stewart Hunter. He grew up in the Middle East and Scotland, and he's the author of a collection of short stories, Something You Once Told Me, and a novel, Aden, which is just coming out this month. It's a ravishing story of love, loss, ambition, and betrayal, set against an end-of-empire backdrop of revolution. As well as featuring literary reviews, his stories have been collected in anthologies and broadcast on BBC Radio 4. A graduate in screenwriting of the National Film and Television School, he lives in London. I present Barry Stewart Hunter. Uh -huh. 
Thanks very much and hello. Um, in November 1967, 50 years ago next month, following a prolonged and bloody insurgency backed by the USSR, the Union Jack was lowered for the last time over Aden, a British Crown colony strategically sited at the mouth of the Red Sea and the place where I was born. For the large cast of Aden, caught up in tumultuous events at the tip of Arabia, the Cold War is about to get much hotter. Good evening, everyone. My name is Barry Stewart Hunter, as you've heard. I'm a novelist, short story writer, and screenwriter, and I'm very pleased to be here at the Brixton Book Jam tonight. The novel I'm going to read is called Aiden. It's just published, and it's available to purchase on Amazon, priced $9.99. There are a few copies here tonight as well for sale, and also some copies of my short story collection, as Zelda has said, something you once told me. So in the short passage I'm going to read here from Aden, we are in the company of Callum, a young foot soldier serving with the Argyles, that's the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, in Aden. Who else but Taylor would have turned them? Who else but the one who could hurt him most? Callum wasn't angry anymore. He was among the pie dogs, dogs and rubble of the reclaimed land, skimming stones at a mere slip of a moon. He knew exactly what he needed to do to restore order to the universe. He must win Taylor back. It was the easiest thing in the world, Callum told himself. He fished a shard of pottery from his sporran and assessed its powdery heft. It would have made the perfect skimmer, no question. Nine leaps, ten. Ten was far too many to waste on a half-assed moon. Callum tucked the shard away again. Yes, it was simple. He need only act as they did. He abandoned the dogs. The clock tower was wrong. That was okay. Time had no relevance, no meaning. Crossing Tawahi Road under the broken clock, he made directly for the dark, the dark face of Shamsan. Soon he was behind Steamer Point in a nameless alley of colorless clothes strung out like flags of surrender on the eve of occupation. Callum saw no one. When he turned for a moment, he glimpsed the lights of the bigger ships below. He turned away again, climbing from block to block in his dress kilt beneath an apprentice moon. Was there anyone left here alive? Advancing with ransacked heart towards his destination, her sketch map in his hand, Callum discovered he had no need of Susie Wong's directions. He knew just where to go. He saw a crimson gash on the east side in the form of a neon arrow. The sign directed him down half a dozen steps towards a door open to the night. Callum folded up his map. There was the music coming from inside and the caged toucan. It laughed as he drew aside the curtain. Beyond the drape, the light was stained blue with smoke. There was a jukebox like a church organ on the far side of the room. That was what Callum saw first. He stood rooted there beside the curtain in a quiet relieved by the tinkle of ice cubes in tall glasses. Then the jukebox plucked another 45 from the rack, its arm touching down at last with a gorgeous thump. Callum judged it all a homecoming. Yes, he felt at home here. At the center of the room, he detected a languorous locomotion. Three couples danced cheek, cheek to cheek with their fingers interlocked or hands joined tenderly above according to the rules of a game played out repeatedly as if the world might end tonight. The game of love, it was easy to play here and so cheap. Each time the music stopped, a heart must break. Off came Callum's beret. 
he proceeded as rehearsed towards a stool at the bar, the fall of his steps keeping time with the song. The barman was oriental, no universal. He was some toothless grinner with pipe-hardened eye. He had the mirror behind him, his grubby bow tie sagged on an elastic band. Happy hour, Johnny, he announced, drinks half price. As he eyed the flashing bottles below the mirror, Callum saw her loom out of the smoke behind him. Already she limped, already she was damaged, danced off her feet. Always happy hour here, love. Doesn't much matter what time of night it is, or day. She slipped in beside him and drew an ashtray closer. Watching her strike her match in the mirror, Callum marveled at the easy way of her. She automatically knew what to say. She was old, upwards of 30, say, with black hair, very shiny and clean, and nails that matched her painted lips. Her dress left her dark shoulders bare. On the shady hill above her breasts, a silver chain plunged in sparkling streams towards a tiny cross. First time, is it, Jock? What did she mean? Did she mean first time here, or just first time? It didn't matter. The answer was the same. She had worked all that out for herself, pulling hard on her cigarette. Callum thought she might be drunk. Not drunk, tipsy. The best of her smoke rose and fell in a pillar of light above her. Give me a beer, please, said the young soldier. We get them by the busload here, Jock, lost virgins in kilts. My name isn't actually Jock. I have my own name, believe it or not. Then he got it, his name. She had no use for it. Ah, good, someone's feeling sensitive tonight. She wrapped her knuckles twice on the bar. Better make mine a large one, Charlie. Callum opened his sporran. There was the fragment of pottery in there with the cash and the credits. As he got down from the stool, he felt her hand, very light, on his arm. Do you want to go upstairs? She took her hand away. Callum looked up and met her eyes in the mirror. Well, do you, Jock, she whispered, lowering her gaze now. in this set is Alyssa Warren, who spent a muddy, scruffy, happy childhood in the creeks and abandoned homesteads of South Dakota. Before completing a BA in English Literature at Westmont College, Santa Barbara, an MA at the University of Sydney, Australia, and she's also taught creative writing and modern British literature at the Universidad San Francisco in Quito, Ecuador. She obviously felt she'd done a bit too much chilling out in her childhood. Uh, since then, she's served as a contributing editor for Surface magazine, covering art, design and fashion. She's an art artist, printmaker and photographer based in East London, where she lives with her husband and three sons. And she'll be reading to us today from her novel, Not the Only Sky. Hello. Can everyone hear me? My name's Alyssa, this is my first novel, uh, Not the Only Sky. It's a, a coming of age story set in South Dakota and California. Uh, I'm gonna read um, a short scene that's set in South Dakota. Uh, it's 1988 and my main character, Tiny Mite, is eight years old 
and she lives in um, quite an isolated farmhouse in the middle of a huge cornfield. The closest town only has 500 inhabitants, Big Bend, with her grandmother, her great aunt, and her heartbroken mother, Velvet. Um, at this point, everyone's asleep. It's the middle of the night, and um, Tiny Mike can be a bit difficult. She's been sent to bed without her supper, and so now she's about to do something about that. <clears throat> Tiny Mite hopscotches down the bare wooden staircase. One false move and she'll be a goner. Even if B were in a coma, brought on by a wrecking ball, she'd hear the stairs creak and awaken. When Tiny Mite safely reaches the front hall, the moonlight shining through the window in the door allows her to round the corner into the kitchen without knocking over any of the muddy boots or shoes lined up on newspapers. Though her stomach rumbles as she edges along the counter sink and stove, Tiny Mite wouldn't dream of stopping in the kitchen. Bee monitors the supplies of her refrigerator and pantry with the same degree of vigilance Lovey employs for age spots and wrinkles. Gingerly lifting the can opener from its hook near the stove, Tiny Mite tiptoes to the booth and discovers, to her delight, the basement door wide open. Now she won't have to wait for an outside noise to cover its mewling hinge. Three steps into the basement and dinner's wet smells of boiling pasta and hamburger grease are overcome by dry ones. Dust, canvas, washing powder, dryer lint, sawdust. At the bottom of the staircase, Tiny Mite reaches into the hole under the last step where she keeps a flashlight and shines it across a rack of army and hunting coats, a deep freeze, bags of potting soil, and the sawdust-filled crates where Bee buries carrots, beets, and potatoes alongside pieces of tin to prevent them from growing eyes. Running the flashlight over the first set of metal shelves, Tiny Mike gazes longingly at the jars of corn, onions, beans, pickles, zucchinis, tomatoes, and cherries Bee canned the previous summer and fall. Alongside them sit crocks of honey and homemade preserves, boxes of cornflakes and pancake mix, tins of pork and beef and crates of Coca-Cola. Tiny Mite recognizes a case of potato chips that were on sale at the Dale Mercantile the month before, but wouldn't dream of touching this food, Bee's second pantry. She moves deeper into the basement along 20 shelves arranged perpendicular to the wall and filled with tins of tuna, beef, spam, and sardines, industrial-sized jars of sauerkraut, horseradish, preserved lemons, hundreds of boxed foods practically unrecognizable as they're coated with spider webs and thick dust. One set of shelves is crammed with burlock bags full of flour, sugar, salt, cornmeal, coffee, soybeans, kidney beans, lentils, and oats. Another is devoted entirely to Campbell's soup. Though the labels are nearly unreadable, Tiny Mike can estimate the location of most soups because B alphabetizes them. Not in the mood for cold soup, she continues to the area where B helps Favita cheese and variety-sized cereal boxes. She considers a miniature box of Special K and can of V8 before moving on to another shelf full of SpaghettiOs. She must be careful with her selection. If she takes something from the front of the shelf, B might notice, but if she takes it too far from the back, it could be 10 years old, as that's how long Bee's been collecting food for the apocalypse. 
Tiny Mite avoids the oldest food, even though B insists expiration dates are a conspiracy between the government and capitalists to trick distant people into throwing away perfectly good food. Tiny Mite knows she should feel guilty stealing rations they'll need when Christians aren't allowed to buy food, but there's a rhinoceros circling her stomach, and if she doesn't feed him, his horn will rip a hole in her gut so large her intestines will fall out, and she'll have to drag them around like prison chains. She settles, therefore, on a five-year-old can of SpaghettiOs and carries it to the gasoline drum where she always sits to consume contraband. She hops onto the drum, and just as she presses the can opener against the can's tin lip, hears the basement door close. Tiny Mite flicks off her flashlight. Darkness pounces on her, a black tomcat. With each downward step on the rickety stairs, stomp, stump, dump, plunk, plod, clod, clump, a bomb explodes in her heart because she can only imagine zombies, murderers, perverts, or demons walking like that. A thought bubble appears over her head. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now Tiny Mite understands why Benny's family prays, pinching those pill-sized beads. When you're peeing your pants scared, it helps to hold on to something. The steps change to a hissing scrape against the basement's concrete floor the claws of a demon limping toward her. Imagining its pus-leaking scales, she regrets every time she sat in church hoping she'd see one squeezing out of a repentant's mouth. God must have mistaken her curiosity for a prayer, as if she'd want to meet a demon all by herself in the basement of all places when B, the congregation's fiercest prayer warrior, is upstairs fast asleep. The demon stops several shells from Tiny Mite and grunts as it slides one of the burlap bags against the wall. Tiny Mite wonders if he too is hungry. She's not aware of any verses saying demons eat people, but just in case he hasn't read the Bible and tries, raises her can opener for a fight. Papery rustling is followed by a tiny metallic clack. A more silence. Why isn't the demon slobbering? Can't he just rip the bag of chips open and get it over with? Then Tiny Mite remembers demons have infrared vision. It has spied her through the shelves and paused in order to debate whether he should eat her limbs first and heart last, or go for it and rip her heart out of her chest and enjoy it at its still beating freshest. When she expects to faint for real, the demon surprises her. He whimpers. It's not a wimpy whimper either, but a single focused note twisting like a pencil in a sharpener like that awful sound that comes out of the radio after the man with the monotone voice says, this is a message from the emergency broadcast system. This is a test, only a test. Just when Tiny might think she'd rather be eaten alive than endure another second, the sound another second, it stops as abruptly as a pheasant shot out of the sky. The demon makes a greedy seesaw sucking sound in and out, the demon slobbers, shudders, slobbers, then hiccups, gasps, and hiccups again, which if Tiny Mite really thinks about it, sounds like sobbing. She squints at the darkness as if it'll clarify the sound. The demon is crying. She feels sorry for it. Maybe it limped because it's hurt? She imagines fixing its talon and taking care of it, keeping it under her pine tree. Imagine Bee's face if she found Tiny Mite's pet demon. The demon stops crying and lights a match. 
In the flame's corona, Tiny might see satin lips pleated around a cigarette and two dimples, each a puddle of orange light. Tiny might gulps. What could make her mother cry like that? Even Scarlett O'Hara doesn't cry like that. The tip of the cigarette hovers in the darkness like a firefly. Should Tiny might go to Velvet? Would she be happy to see her? Or think Tiny might was spying? Tiny might feels a new kind of fear, an unraveling. Instead of smothering her, the darkness retracts, filling the basement and oozing up through the basement door, popping the roof off the farmhouse and spilling into the cornfields, covering Big Bend, the county, the state, the United States, North America, the Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, the outer reaches, reaches of the Milky Way, the Pegasus Galley, Galaxy, 2.2 million light years of outer space, Andromeda, 50 million more light years of outer space, all 2,000 galaxies in the Virgo cluster, and further. But that's only as far as Tiny Mike can see. She remains still long after Velvet has smashed out the cigarette and left the basement, waiting until she's lost the feeling in her bottom to jump down from the metal drum, turn on her flashlight, and return the untouched can of SpaghettiOs to the shelf. Tiny Mite follows her mother's footprints through the dust to a pile of bags stacked against a wall. Behind them, she finds a dark opening. On the count of three, she flashes the light into the hole, deep inside a circular container. Careful not to stray outside her mother's footprints, she edges closer, but can ascertain nothing more than the fact that the vessel is a large Folgers can. Tiny Mite's imagination careens through possibilities. Hidden money? Love letters from blankety blank? The birth certificate of a twin who died or was separated from Tiny Mite at birth? A secret pet? She aims the flashlight at the lid, but doesn't see any air holes. A thought bubble appears above her head. Pandora's box. She'd always imagined it like a bejeweled pirate trunk, but remembering that the Ark of the Covenant was stored in a plain cedar box, decides this must be it and Velvet was silly, silly enough to open it. Relieved to have an explanation for the sounds and the tears, Tiny Mite backs out of the dusty aisle and runs to her room. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Okay, we're gonna have a, a very short musical interlude from Mike Perrett. He's right here. He's going to be setting up. Uh, tell me about your music, Mike. Lovely. It's lovely. I heard it before. It's very nice. Uh, uh, it's, it's very. They're, a, they're not. They're not about the words. These musicians. Um, so since we're going to play, then we'll have a a, a little break, um, and I'll come and shout in the bar when you need to come back from the break. And you can spend the break looking at the wonderful books that people have brought here. They're all, they all have a book jam discounts, so you'll be able to get them here, cheaper than anywhere else. And one of the things book jam does, we know authors get gouged by publishers, by the industry, by trauma, by everything, so they, get, they actually get all of the money from the books. We don't take any of it. So go buy their books. Good evening, everyone. You're a bit out of my comfort zone for this, really. Um, but I thought 
we're in the room. Um, I thought I'd, I'd do um, two of my most story-ish songs for you. This one is called 1973, and every word of it is absolutely true apart from the word 1973 and the word nearly. It's 1973, I'm late home for tea And the girl at the youth club says her mate fancies me I think she's kind of sweet, hey she'll do for me It's our little secret just between her and me Made my knees go weak To ask if she go out with me My sisters laughed and poked fun at me for a week No one knows the school But I'm feeling pretty cool And I'm walking ten feet tall In my new platform shoes yeah, I'm walking ten feet tall in my new platform shoes And I nearly wet my pants First time we held hands And oh, I guess that's what you call romance Oh, I guess that's what you call romance It's 1973, magpies on TV And a girl at the youth club says, a mate's done with me My denim jacket's got embroidery It says we sold our soul for rock and roll and my mum did it for me yeah, we sold our soul for rock and roll And my mum did it for me And I nearly wet my pants First time we held hands Oh, I guess that's what you call romance Oh, I guess that's what you call romance Oh I guess that's what you call Romance
Thank you very much. Um, and this one is, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of, of looking at yourself in childhood and then seeing yourself as an adult. And my wife took, uh, or put, she didn't take, she put some pictures of me as a, a small boy together and I looked at it one night. I went, that's not me. Um, and this is sort of what, what this is about. Um, it's from a time when I couldn't believe that I wouldn't become a professional footballer. Let's call him Sonny Jim I wonder what I'd have to say If I could talk to him Cause he hasn't got an inkling Of what to expect And none of life's disappointments Have happened yet Photograph will one day play Centre forward for England and Sheffield Wednesday He's got a wild imagination Limitless energy Turns and shoots and scores And then he drops to his knees That boy in the photograph will one day fall apart And although he's the apple of his mother's eye he break her heart Yeah, the boy in the photograph will one day fall apart and although he's the apple of his mother's eye, you break her heart. Thank you very much. <laughs> 